Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We've got a bumper gag and pod packed with guests and the biggest issues of the week. Leeds have a new gaffer. Who better than former Premier League star Michael Bridges to talk about what it means in the relegation battle? He'll be joined by fellow former Premier League star Thomas Sorensen. Then we get to one of the biggest burning issues in women's football. Journalist Alex Ibiseta joins former Matilda Amy Duggan to give us the lowdown on what's wrong with Spain. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri. This is the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Let's get in to the Gegenpod. We start the Gegenpod this week with our former stars of the Premier League, Michael Bridges and Thomas Sorensen. And there are no shortage of things to jump into and discuss. We were already going to start with a big weekend that really shook up the relegation zone. And some breaking news overnight into Wednesday morning Australian time means that Leeds United is back at the top of the card. Michael Bridges, as we welcome you to the Gagan Pod at Leeds, welcome Javi Gracia to the club as their manager. Yes, a good evening, listeners. And obviously, Thomas and Teo yourself, it's been big news over here. Obviously, Leeds United have been have been trying to get a, a manager in. They've been looking. Sadly, it didn't materialise as quick as they would have liked. And I think that was a lot to do with the, the contract negotiations. You know, they were unwilling to give a big contract out in case the inevitable happens. So I would imagine that this this deal has been done where there'll be huge um, bonuses and incentives to keep Leeds in the Premier League uh, with the option to, to stay on as manager next next season as well. So a short-term contract. Uh, I think, um, and I, do you know what it is? I'm, I'm really happy with this appointment. I've got to say, um, when you think of what he'd done with Watford, keeping them in the Premier League, also a cup final with Watford as well. Um, and he's been around, so he's got the experience. I'm just hoping that he can come in. And obviously, you know, they, they're going to keep the status quo of the, the staff at present because I think the, the turnaround, the two results they showed against, or the not the results, sorry, the two performances they showed against Manchester United were very, very spirited and looked very, I would say, a, a better style of football. But the result against Southampton, unfortunately, yeah, that's where they had to, to, to hit the panic button. Or the Everton result, now going into the Southampton result, that's why they needed the manager, sorry. And I, I think as well, Bridget, I think you, you nailed a lot of the things. And, and, you know, just to have someone, they needed a shot of energy. They needed someone in there who's, first of all, as you said, he, he's been there and done it. Like he, he, was, he kept Watford in the league. He's been around. He's, you know, managed two teams in Spain. He's been in Russia. He's been in the Middle East. So he's got a wealth of experience. Uh, and, and it's a no-risk deal, really. Um, and, and they need just, you know, just something from somewhere. Because when you look at, you know, they've got 12 points uh, from, from 20 games, from the last 20 games. And, and that's not going to keep any team in any league. And, uh, you know, that big game coming up this weekend, I think just, you know, going with uh, Skubala for, for another game, uh, I think was the wrong decision. So, Yes, they've hit the panic button a little bit. They didn't get the people that they wanted in, but I think it's you know looking at what they could have got. I think this is actually not a bad decision. 
Now, you mentioned, both of you, that he kept Watford in the Premier League. I mean, he didn't just do that. He got them to 11th place and 50 points. Now, let's put aside the fact that the next season he was sacked in September with only one point through the first half a dozen games. But I guess it is evidence that he can get his teams in a run of form, and that's what Leeds need at the moment. So, Michael Bridges... Uh, we will come to uh, asking who you three are going to be that are going down. So don't tell me just yet, but you must be feeling as though that when you say that Leeds are going to stay up, because I assume that's what you're going to say, you can say it with a degree of confidence here. I've got to say it with a degree of confidence. I'm a Leeds United ambassador, (laughs) Teo, so if I don't say it, I won't be employed anymore. So (laughs) I don't mind saying that. And, you know, everybody's got to have belief that is associated with the football club. And I think the... The, what what I've seen going on behind the scenes um, in, in my you know my time there, it, it's been you know super impressive. You've got the 49ers thing going on in the background, the players that have been brought in, um, and like you say, this managerial the, when they couldn't get the players that the the managers they were after. I, I think you know Victor Ort has has realised and he said you know we've got a lot of players that have, are young, fit. I mean, McKenney and Tyler Adams in the midfield are just full of energy. So the pressing style is what they will be going after. So I'm just pleased that they haven't. I mean, I made a statement last week um, saying that Sean Dyche could have been the man. I was, you know, I was gutted that we missed out because Everton snatched him and he's had a bit of a turnaround in there. I'm delighted now that we didn't go to that kind of decision because of the fact the players that we have at our disposal at Leeds United, I don't think would have suited that style. And I'm pleased that they've, they've gone about the business to find somebody that does suit the style and the, they call it the philosophy, that Leeds are after now. And it's not just going to be having to change to now become a defensive unit team. They're still going to do the press, but they'll play a bit more of an expansive game. And he's got the pedigree we talked about, so I'm delighted. So if you want me bottom three, Teo, I'm going to say Southampton are going down. I'm going to say Bournemouth are going down. And I'm going to take a punt on. I'm going to throw Everton in there, and I'm going to say that they will because I, I like what Lopetegui's done with Wolves, and I think West West Ham with Moyes, there's got to be something in there, surely. But they're not showing it. He could he could be the next one gone, you know. Well, let's uh, before we move on to West Ham, Thomas. I just wanted to ask you as well about Leeds long-term because as we've heard from Bridgie there, Harvey Garcia, he's there for a sprint, not a marathon. Does this lay the groundwork if Leeds avoid relegation to go and acquire Ange Postacoglu from Celtic next season? Yeah, it definitely uh, opens the options up for them. I think, uh, you know, first of all, first priority, stay in the Premier League and then you reassess at the end of the season. You can go after, you know, there was... Ariola from Raya Vallecano, there, there was Corporan from, from West Brom, depending on if West Brom doesn't get uh, promoted, you know, you, you might have some different options and you might actually be able to get um, the guy that you actually wanted in the first place. And, and that could have been like Postacoglu, I think would be immense. Uh, you know, I think that's the situation he would want to go into, um, you know, where you know, you, you have a full season in the Premier League, you can you can you have a summer to, to shape a squad and, and try to put your stamp on the culture and everything around it. So I think, you know, if Leeds stay in the Premier League, it actually they they'll put it in a put them in a pretty good squad uh, spot and um yeah, I, I I agree with Bridget. I think Leeds are gonna stay up. I think this is is just gonna turn a corner because I think looking at their squad it, it's too good compared to, to some of the others. I agree with with Bournemouth. Uh, 
I actually think that Wolves could potentially uh, slide in there and, and become part of that uh, battle at the bottom. Um, and then it depends on what happens at West Ham because I, I, I just struggle to see, and we'll probably talk about it in a minute, but uh, I struggle to see West Ham under Moyes uh, having that turnaround that's needed. So if Moyes stays on, I think sadly West Ham will be uh, the uh, relegated side. I hate to say this, but when I'm looking at the table there and you look at 10th position, 31 points, it's still not safe for Chelsea, by the way. They could still be in the relegation <laughs> battle. Just put it out there. Just to mix it up. Bridgie, Bridgie. This, is what we talk about. this is what we talk about on the floor here at Optus when we're editing mini-matches at three in the morning. I mean, you, you've, uh, you, you wouldn't be alone with us uh, out on the tools, mate. Just, just throwing that one amongst you know, cat amongst the pigeons. But what I do, so, so, the so other one saying, I will say, you're saying that they can't get three wins before the end of the season. Like you're looking at the forty points back. Come on, Bridgie. You know, Wait, they, I'm they saying with the players at his, <laughs> the players at his disposal, he's really struggling to score against Southampton. That's a worry, man. But yeah. well, the other thing I would say, Tommy, talking about Ange Postecoglou, it's really, really ironic because I remember having a chat to. Um, Paul Bell at the football club. Um, I'm thinking maybe it was three, three or four years ago now when Leeds and Manchester United played each other at the Optus Stadium in Perth. And we were having a chat and I'm talking about, you know, Bielsa is an incredible manager. Who are you looking at to the next to be the next manager of the football club if, if anything should happen? And, that, you know, they, they're not going to say who, who they've been looking at, who they've got in mind, or thinking that Bielsa is going to be there for years. And I just remember saying... I've, I threw Ange's name in back then. I said, just put him on the radar. I said, just keep an eye on what he's doing, what Ange's doing. I said, he's doing wonderful things. He's he's going over to the J-League. I said, he'll probably win that and then watch what happens. And, you know, it's it's so refreshing to think that Ange is actually talked about in, in the Premier League now, which is absolutely incredible for Australian coaches. And kudos to Ange for, um, you know, where he's been, what he's done and where he's come from. Because if you think many years ago, certain people were calling for his head when he was under 20, 23's coach of the Socceroos. We have touched on West Ham. They currently sit in the relegation zone. Bournemouth leapfrogged them at the weekend. David Moyes is seriously on the nose with West Ham's own fans. And they were up in arms because in his post-match interview at the weekend, he mentioned a lack of goals from Danny Ings, even though Danny Ings hasn't been subbed on <laughs> earlier than the 66th minute in any game that he's played. So he's not even starting. Uh, is, is this uh, a manager that's just grasping at straws before the inevitable exit? Or are West Ham's management perhaps looking at what happened with Leeds and their struggles to hire a manager and thinking, well, let's stick with David Moyes because he's what we've got? Hang on, isn't this the same manager that said that West Ham would finish in the European spots about seven or eight weeks ago? He's coming out with some classics at the minute because Tommy, you know, he's, he's come out with that one. Tommy will tell you, right, I didn't score many goals for Sunderland Football Club from when I started. But when I came off the bench, I was known as the super sub, right? Sadly, that's not Danny Ings. He needs to start games to score goals. And I just think Moises, he's opened up a can of worms here for everybody to have a laugh and a joke. And I wouldn't imagine if Danny Ings is even laughing at the comments thinking, how hey, man, give, give us a chance to show you something. Yeah, but I think the, the, the thing that worries me, yeah, first first of all, he, he's, he's coming out with that sort of comment. But he was also coming out with with that, you know, they, they need to focus more on, on keeping clean sheets because they're not scoring goals. So, so it's more important to uh, prevent the other team from scoring because, you know, that would lead to more points. And I think the way they're playing, just looking at the Tottenham game, how they set up, it was so defensive. 
Uh, and at some point, you know, uh, they've got enough quality players there. Uh, I know he's he's had a you know a few injuries now. You know, Paqueta was out, Maxwell, Corne, uh, Skamaka as well. Uh, they're slowly coming back, so so he'll have more options. But on the other hand, he he needs to let the shackles off. You know, he he needs to start going for wins instead of just playing it safe because it's obviously not working. Um, you know, when when you won. Five out of the last twenty-three. You know, you, you're not, um, you know, <laughs> you're not on the way to safety. That's for sure. Well, especially when they're craving goals, and he's talking about Danny Ings not scoring because that game you mentioned there, Tommy, against Tottenham Hotspur. I've got to say, I'm I'm a big fan of um, Antonio Antonio, um, and he looked absolutely shocking. His body language was terrible. He looked isolated. There was nobody making runs off him. And the only player that really stood out for me in that team was was Jared Bowen, who got kicked from pillar to post of Perisic towards the end of the game because he was, you know, Bowen was the only threat. So when you think of the the players that he's got at his disposal in the final third that are not allowed to express themselves, I totally agree with you, mate. I think there's major trouble and issues there behind the scenes with the players that are are not happy with with what's going on. Well, we heard your three that are going down, Bridgie. Right now, there is just six points between 12th and 18th. So you can throw a blanket over almost half the table. In your case, Bridgie, if you think uh, Chelsea's still in trouble, literally half the table. Thomas Sorensen, <laughs> give us your three that you think will be going down and give us a couple of reasons why you're going to choose those three. Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, Bournemouth, I think will will go down. Um I, I just, uh, you know, they, they pop up and obviously they beat Wolves, so they pop up with results. But I think in, in the long term, I don't think they'll have enough. Uh, Southampton as well, you know, uh, they, they'll pop up with the results, but I don't think they, they'll get enough points. I think they'll lose uh, against Leeds this weekend uh, and that, that's going to sweep, uh, you know, that, that's going to flip that. <sighs> you know, and I think Leicester and Nottingham Forest, uh, they're, they're also going to, you know, again, struggle for points. Um, but yeah, I, I sadly see uh, West Ham. Uh, if, if we're looking at the current situation, uh, I see West Ham uh, going down uh, if they don't change the manager and, and if Moyes is not. You know, if it's status quo uh, as it is and if it stays like the way uh, they're going about it at the moment, they're going down. So I've got West Ham, Southampton and Bournemouth at this moment in time. Yes, Thomas, I'm putting that out on social media and you're going to get all the Leeds fans following you now. Love it. <laughs> no, Leeds will be good. You've both got a big name going down there. Bridget, you've got Everton, Thomas, you've got West Ham uh, dropping out of the Premier League. So those are two teams that at the start of the season, Everton would have had their doubts, but there's, West Ham absolutely wouldn't have thought they were entering this season, especially given the money they spent, Thomas, that they would be in a relegation battle, never mind actually going down. Yeah, no, they spent it was $150 million, uh, 160 I think, uh, in, in the summer, and uh, you know, Moyes, you know, he has done a great job there, you know, getting them into Europe two seasons in a row. They're, they're still in Europe, uh, you know, with a chance to do something there. I think last week Moyes was, was talking about winning a European trophy. Um, but, you know, uh, there's just too many warning signs. And I think it, it's, you know, you, you can see teams where, you know, just a needle starts to, to point the wrong way. And I think that's where... You know, body language, as, as Bridgie was talking about, I think there's so many things when you watch West Ham that just doesn't look right because, you know, players, uh, you know, who are, you know, who are playing great, who are great players just doesn't perform. And, and that's that's a big, big, big warning for me. And and uh, yeah, that's why I, I feel, uh, 
yeah, something needs to be done there. Let's go to the top of the Premier League because Arsenal's match against Aston Villa really was thriller minute stuff. Uh, Villa leading twice, Arsenal coming back to win 4-2. Late goal from Jorginho and then the sealer when the keeper came up right at the end for Villa and Arsenal with Martinelli running end to end. So, Michael Bridges, what does this say about Arsenal and also Mikel Arteta that when it looked as though they were going to be challenged, they were perhaps going to bottle it, they actually came back and they won? This shows that they are the real deal. They are title contenders. And the manner in which they did it, you know, against Villa 2-1 down, then coming back and and in the end, running away with it 4-2. I know Martinez, the keeper... I don't think Unai Emery was too pleased that he came up for the corner at one point, Tommy. I'd, I'd take, interesting to see your take. I think they were telling him to stay back. Um, and obviously the one that went in off the crossbar, off the back of his head. But what it showed you, they can make substitutions. You know, Martinelli came on. I thought he was absolutely magic. Order God, ran the show. Jorginho uh, uh, showed his absolute class going from one London club to another. And... You know, this this was a massive, massive result for them because I look at their next three matches that they have got coming up and I think it's a lovely little run that they, they are putting together now. They've just got over that. They, they've got Leicester coming up, then they've got Everton and then Bournemouth. So they can play... Arsenal not only can play a huge part in getting their title race and winning these matches, but they're also going to play a major part in the relegation battle for the teams in and around them. So I think this is a, it was a massive result. And with with Man City having a country and Champions League football as well, I really feel that that was a, a massive turning point for Arsenal. That I hate to say it, could could be the, the title. Um, when you look back, this could be the game where they went, that's what won it for us um, when, we, when we lifted the title in 2023. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you, Bridget. I think, you know, just even not, not, not the next three games, but you look 10 games ahead. I think they, they got a great run where, you know, they should be able to pick up plenty of points. And um, Man City just seems when you when you think they're just about to hit the stride, they, they come up with a shocking result. And, you know, the, the, the game against Nottingham Forest, like how they, you know, they could have won five games in, in that one game. And I, I don't know how they missed the chances they did, you know, from... From players, uh, you know who who you count on in these sort of situations to to score. Obviously, Haaland had some absolute sitters. Foden uh, had a couple as well, and and then to, to concede the way they conceded. Um, yeah, it, it just seems to be the the story sometimes with with City. They uh, they just draw you in and give you confidence, and then they uh, <laughs> they come up with a shocking result. So <laughs> it, it's, uh, yeah, sadly, I, I feel Arsenal um, were on the cusp and, and just on the edge, but I think yeah, I think they're going to go on a good run now, and, and it'll be tough for City to keep up. Do, do you know what it is? I'm, I'm actually thinking, I'd be more reluctant to say that Arsenal and Man United have got more chance of winning the Premier League than Man City. There you go. I know, I know Man United are on an incredible run of form. They're only three points behind City. Uh, I think with City in the Champions League and, and United, I, I, I think it could be Arsenal United that lift the title. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Shook I wouldn't go that today, far. by the way. Throwing them out everywhere I, I, today. <laughs> I still count City in there for sure, but... Uh... Yeah, no, it's 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 going to be interesting. It, it's a great battle. Like finally, we got some some you know two or three three teams in there. It's great to see United up there as well. Well, again, United uh, they've got the Carabao Cup final coming up this weekend, so 
they'll have another game in hand as a result. It'll cause a little bit more fixture congestion. Let's not forget they've got the second leg at home against Barcelona too after that really great first leg of their Europa League uh, round of 32 games. So, Thomas, uh, we talk about Manchester City having the distraction of the Champions League, which is their top priority. But what about Manchester United? Because as much as they're on a good run too... Their fixtures are piling up. They're going to have to start rotating the squad or, or trust a lot of guys off three- and four-day breaks. Just how difficult is this stretch going to be? And uh, and with that said, uh, are we taking it as read that they're going to win this Carabao Cup final coming up on uh, Monday morning? Oh, yeah. I think they uh, you know, they, they, they will need that as well. Just to get a trophy, I think it's been, it's been a while. Um, and, and just to continue the positive uh, vibes, I think, uh, you know, it's going to be difficult. You know, Newcastle will, will throw in some... You know they're you know hard to beat, um, but you, you would think in the run of form that United are in the day going to create enough chances, and uh, you know Rashford is 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 magic um, at the moment. Uh, so so the, the final is coming at the, exactly the the right time. But it, it's it's great to see United, and I I think they have a squad now where they can juggle that congestion. I think you know Sabits are coming in. Uh, Vekhorst, uh, you know they still got Maguire as a cover at the back. You know, so I can see them uh, at least looking a, a lot more. They just look better now as a squad to 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 cope with this. And 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 when the vibe is good, uh, players coming off the bench will just slot in. You know, that's you know when the momentum is there, there's not so much to worry about. So so I, you know, I'm not as worried as you, uh, Theo. I think uh, I think they're 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 going to cope with it. Bridgie, who have you got coming up, Trumps, in that uh, Carabao Cup final? Because, again, a piece of silverware for Newcastle would really turbocharge them. They've really gone off the boil at the worst possible time. And I seem to recall suggesting to you that that little run of draws that they went on suggested their form wasn't too good. But you were, you were talking tough about them being on an unbeaten run. Until they came up against Liverpool, yes. And a mighty Liverpool they came up against. But... Newcastle, I was at the stadium, Newcastle started the game fantastic, first 12 minutes of the game, they got caught out by two brilliant counter-attacking moments, balls over the top, the timing of the runs from Liverpool, they look back to their best Liverpool with the, the dynamic and the, the timing of the runs. So the, the thing is with, with the Newcastle result, they've really missed Bruno Gimraes in the midfield in the last in the league, he got the red card. Um, and what the fans are saying, thankfully it hasn't cost him a finals place um, he got got the you know he's going to be back for the final. However, it's really damaged them in the in the league. So everything goes through Bruno. He he's, he sets up play when they're playing through the, the the midfield, the mid third. He's there. He's looking for the gaps. He he just makes things happen. So they'll be delighted that they've got him back for the final. However, Nick Pope getting the red card. He's out. Debravka is um, cup tied with Man United. Dolo is out on loan at Hull City. So we're looking now at fourth and fifth choice goalkeepers, who is Gillespie and Karios. And I hate to say it, but the last Champions League game he had in a final, he had an absolute stinker. So nobody knows what um, what Eddie Howe is going to say. Thomas, take us inside the mind of Loris Karius. Surely as a goalkeeper, he is actually looking forward to the chance to almost four, five years on from that Champions League final rewrite the story of his career and make amends. Yeah, no, he'll have some demons to, to fight with. I, th- I think uh, he's had that ever since. He's never been the same, <laughs> uh, uh, for sure. Uh, you can see it. Uh, he went to Turkey. He had a difficult time there. Um, and, and he sort of just drifted into the shadows. But as you say, this is a huge opportunity. I think in, in his book, and that's the way he should focus in and, and prepare mentally, is that he's got nothing to lose. And I think everyone expects him to fail. Everyone expects him to have a, a nightmare. 
And, and he can actually turn the tides here. If he comes out and, and, and has a, a cracker of a game, you know, he's right back in there and people will change his, their per perception and, and he can be a hero at Newcastle. So, you know, what an opportunity to, to, to you know, get back and revitalize your career. So that, I think that's, that's the mindset you have to have and you have to, you know, try to forget everything. And, and uh, I'm sure he's dealt with those demons from uh, back then. He's had plenty of time uh, and he's, he's heard plenty of comments and I'm sure it's hardened him. So, uh, you know, if he gets a chance, I'm sure he'll be ready. I can see the headlines now. It's Monday morning in the UK. Zero to hero as he helps Newcastle United lift the League <laughs> Cup and bring silverware back to the tune. There you go. I like, I like it. I like it, Bridgie. <laughs> well, let's uh, finish the Premier League chat with a bit of Chelsea because Graham Potter says uh, that while some fans think that he is, quote, the problem, he doesn't think that's the case. However... A lot of the journos in England that cover the breaking news and sort of the news beat or just, you know, the, the managerial sack race, they talk about Graham Potter every day now. And it's almost like a watch this space. Bridgie, how close to the precipice is Graham Potter? I realise we say this about once a month on the Gegen Pod, but how much worse can it get before Chelsea make a decision? Oh, oh, yeah, I mean, it's incredible. A massive game coming up against Tottenham next. And then I look, he's got a nice little run, right? They've got Leeds United... Then they've got Leicester, and then they have, I think it is Everton, I do believe. So he'll be wanting to get through this Tottenham game unscathed, okay, Graham Potter? I'm a big fan of his. I would love to think, when you think back to Arteta, when he was almost like one goal away from the fact, you know, everybody was on his back saying he's got to go. He's, they're not happy with the results, Nick, but you could actually see something was materialising. And I'm delighted that the, the board and the owners stuck by Arteta. And he made some big decisions. He got some. He got some kahunas, and he made some big, big decisions. Okay, I would like to think that Potter is given count this season now. Right, whatever they get out of this season is is going to be a blessing to give him a fresh start in the off season and let him get rid of some of the dead wood that are there. Players that he can actually... So he can make a statement. I think what the fans are wanting is to see him make a statement where he says, you know what it is, if you're going to have this attitude, this is not a holiday camp. He's, he's, it's work in progress. And in the, I loved his honesty where he said, at Brighton, any results was a bonus and we're able. You must win every game at Chelsea to be seen as successful. And he, he, he said he's feeling the pressure. I, don't, I like his honesty when he was saying that. But I think he needs time. I would love to see him be given time and just have next season to get rid of some of the crap. And they desperately need a number nine. Now, whether he brings Lukaku back, who knows? They're, they're, they're really struggling to score goals. So get beat at what I will say. If they lose at Tottenham or they don't get anything at that game and then they don't get six points out of the Leeds, Everton and Leicester game, he could be on his arse and he could be on his way out. But I hope not because I, I want to see an English manager succeed at a big major club because of the you know the the way he's gone about his managerial journey. Yeah, I think that you know the, the difference is is had it been on Abramovich, he would have been gone uh, definitely by now. Um, but I think Todd Bowley, the way he sort of runs his franchises, I think uh, works in his favour a little bit. He's more long term strategy, and um, you know again, I I hope he succeeds. Uh, I just didn't like the way he came out and said, I'm not the problem. Uh, so, so that's sort of, what is the problem? You know, the, it just opens up a lot more questions. But that, that's, why he's he got a, that's why he's got to grow some kahunas, Tommy. That's why yeah, he's got to grow yeah, some kahunas so, and actually say, what is the problem? 
Yeah, that, I, I, I totally agree because for, for me, it just uh, just threw in a lot of question marks. Uh, and, and when you've only won one, two out of the last 14, you know, you know questions are already being asked. So I, I agree the next uh, little time is going to be crucial for them. He needs to turn around and he needs to get results. Um, but hopefully, you know, I, again, I think it's exciting what, what's happening at Chelsea. I like the way they've gone young, um, but... He needs to be the man that, that gets them all to gel and gets them all to perform. And at the moment, they're not quite doing it. Thomas Sorensen, Michael Bridges, thank you for a very punchy gagging pod uh, showing on the Premier League this week. Thanks uh, for joining us and we'll speak to you both soon. Thank you very much, Theo. Cheers, thank Tommy. Yeah, thank you. Stay with us on the gagging pod. We have a heap of women's football and World Cup to get to on the other side of this short break. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back to the Gegen Pod. Yes, we say thank you to Thomas Sorensen and Michael Bridges, and we welcome in our next two guests. First off the top, Amy Duggan, former Matilda, who joins us. Amy, great to have you back on the Gegen Pod. Always happy to talk football. And our special guest this week is one of the preeminent journalists and experts uh, for women's football, particularly in Europe, works for DAZN and a, a range of different uh, other organisations. You can find her on Twitter, Alex Ibaceta 23 Alex Ibiseta, it's great to have you on the Gegen Pod. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you for having me on. There's definitely plenty to, to, to talk about at the moment. Well, I just want to go with a nice general one off the top. Are you coming to Australia for the Women's World Cup or will you be covering it from abroad? I intend on being there fully. Fully immersing yourself in what is going to be an amazing atmosphere and, and the biggest yeah. event we've ever seen, Alex. Cannot wait. I am, I, I've committed to the full month, so... I've gone full in. Well, that is fantastic news. And the reason we wanted to get you on and speak to you is because with Spain in the country, there are 15 players who right now, unlike you, are not necessarily committed to being in Australia for the World Cup. It has been a confounding situation to follow from our side of the world. And just off the top, we'd love you to, uh, to give us just a brief explainer of where things currently stand with the 15 players that are, have a dispute with the Spanish Football Federation, with their coach Jorge Vilda, and the reason that Spain have brought this team to Australia and not the one that has been filled with some of the biggest stars in the world, including many of the players that played in the 7-0 win against Australia in the middle of last year. I'm going to try to keep this brief as much as I actually can. It's well, I guess the main problem would definitely be the conditions of the players and what they live when they're with the national team. The, you know, the players are demanding more. When you look at Jorge Villa, he's been there since 2015 and they've never advanced past a quarterfinal of a major tournament. That has a question within itself. And then you look at the treatment within the federation, it's not professional enough. You know, the, these players, especially when you look at the clubs that they play for, their clubs bring in so much more professionalism and they get that at the club and they don't get that on the national team. So essentially these players are striking for better working working conditions at the end of the day in the national team and the federation is reluctant on giving that to them and because of that they've decided to protest and not be called up to the national team openly and 
as of now, there's not been much progress. Um, a few of the players are interested in potentially coming back to the national team to be able to go to the World Cup. Um, but that not, the president of the federation kind of in, in implied that he's not going to welcome any players that just want to go to the World Cup that haven't been committed to the national team in the past um, few cycles. So I think once Alexia Podéas comes back, that might be a change in everything. But at the moment, I think it's going to stay as it is. So, Alex, if I can dig a little bit deeper into those playing conditions, can you give us some examples of where the players uh, are getting better treatment and what exactly that means? Is it is it about their sleeping quarters? Is it about payment? Is it about, um, you know, the support services that they're provided around them? What, what is the exact issue here? It would definitely be around training sessions about the, I think, the quality of training as well. The quality of training that they get within their, their clubs, for example, Barcelona, Real Madrid, are able to provide the facilities and the the time around training when you're training for a Champions League. We've seen Barcelona go very far, Real Madrid has, have done decently well in the Champions League as well. When you get to the national team, the level of intensity and the level of staff and what, they, what they're asking the players isn't high enough. And that says a lot for these players to be asking for more from the national team because you kind of expect different. Usually the managers and the staff are asking more of the players to show up, but now it's the players asking for more. And again, you know, Spain hasn't <laughs> progressed past quarterfinal of, of a major tournament, and perhaps that is a problem. You know, these these players aren't being put to their maximum potential and they're not being able to to fully engage in the national team. But I don't know, it's it's internal. You know, a lot of it hasn't been said. But it is the players, you know, asking for more that the Federation just hasn't been able to give them and essentially won't be able to give them at all. Why is there a halo around Jorge Vilda? Why is he so important to the Spanish Federation that 15 players protesting against the way he runs the national team means that they're backing the coach over the players? Because normally player power goes a long way in this game. Yeah, uh, Jorge Vila has a history with the current Federation uh, president, not just on the women's side. He has a long history. His father has a long history with the president of the Federation. So it, it goes a bit of protection because of what Jorge Vila has meant for, for the president of the Federation, for example. When the president was being elected for to become president at the end of the day, Jorge Vila and his father voted for him. So you, you can look at it that way, that, you know, it's a favor. And at the end of the day, Jorge Vila is also the sporting director of the women's side. So essentially, Jorge Vila is his own boss. So when you would look to Jorge Vila's boss, you look at himself and he's not going to, you know, get rid of himself, essentially. And when you look at higher ups, that's already the president. So he has that protection from start to finish. So, so Alex, what is the broader public sentiment around this then? Because if they, within the Federation itself, it seems, um, you know, there is some rhyme and reason behind what is going on. The players obviously feel very differently about that. What is the public sentiment around this? I think it depends what club you support at the end of the day. Um, you look at, obviously, you know, Barcelona fans are very against Vilda. I would say the majority of Spanish fans are behind the players. But then you look at the players that are going, and it's majority of Real Madrid players, for example. Real Madrid players, I was at the El Clásico, Women's El Clásico in Madrid, and you know a lot of the, the fans were chanting Villa stay because Real Madrid players are, are playing at the end of the day. You know When you don't have Barcelona players on the national team, Real Madrid players, for example, are getting playing time. So it depends what club you support, but I would say majority of Europe and 
fans are behind the players. Just briefly, you mentioned they've never made it past the quarterfinal stage. And this is the part that I find intriguing, even with their top squad, because uh, for me in 2019, I expected more from Spain at the World Cup, given their junior history and the players that were coming through and, um, you know, having the class of players out on the field uh, that Spain can put out there. And then at the Euros, I think we were all really disappointed with where they finished from a from a neutrals perspective. So how does uh, how does the public feel about that, and how do the players that are not there feel about that? The way Jorge, specifically in the Euros, you look at the Euros, and he had a different midfield option, like a different trio of the midfield for every single game in the group stage. What does that say about consistency in the squad? How do you expect a squad to progress if there's no consistency with? tactics with formations with players being used you even look at Amayur Sariegi she was you know one of the league's top goal scorers she got five minutes against England and she came on against England she showed what she was you know what she was capable of and you're just like it's quite logical to see what's going wrong in terms of players being picked formations you saw for example Aleila Wahabi was being picked over in Olga Carmona and when the changes happened that happened very late in the tournament and it was too late to actually you know get anything done you saw the changes being made and that made the impact so you see it on the pitch you see the players being selected aren't the ones that should be selected at the end of the day because of how they're performing so you, you look at these minimal tactic you know um changes that can be made you see it at home for example you know a few of the managers were on the broadcasters um in spain for the euros that were just criticizing and they have a point you know, they're managers themselves and they're putting, they're saying what everybody's thinking. They're saying that these players should be playing instead of these. This is just not consistent. So what he's, what Jorge Vida is doing wrong and what the players are being, are complaining about, it's not a secret. It's out in the open. You know, most people can see it. Now it's just about him. Again, we said, it. you know, he's being protected. So at the end of the day, it is what it is. But as many, as many people can be behind the players, they can't do the change. Alex, what's the, the level of cut through of women's football? Because obviously uh, England had a, a bit of a... They were already having a, a breakout of women's football due to the strength and the growth of the WSL. But then the Euros turbocharged that and put the Lionesses in the public consciousness to a far greater level. Uh, in Australia, you know, football is not the number one sport. It, it's often in a sort of a wrestle between in-the-know fans versus the casual fan who only supports at World Cup time. Uh, with women's football, what is actually the level of cut through? Because Spain is a football crazed nation and we've seen the crowds of like 90,000 for you know a, uh, a an El Clasico for the women but how much has this conversation actually entered the discourse and how much of it is casual fans who might only watch the World Cup versus fans that are in the know and are deep in the weeds of the issues the team is facing I think at the moment most people in Spain will know about this problem it has gotten into the mainstream media it has gotten in the talks of people that don't even watch, potentially don't even watch women's football, but it's in the headlines of, you know, sports news. It's the headlines of um, newspapers. It, it's a it's a topic of conversation that everybody knows about. And it's it's people that don't, again, that don't necessarily watch women's football on a regular, but everybody knows what's happening in Spain, out of Spain. And it's a topic of conversation that you can basically just have with anyone. And it's, it's you know, it's, it's, Impact. I can't even say it. it's impactful because everybody knows what the problem is. Everybody knows what the solution is, essentially. But the fact that that's, nothing is being done on an internal basis, it's 
it's crazy. So politically, um, the, the Federation, is that totally immobile at the moment? There's nothing that can remove the president of the RFEF. You say that Jorge Vilder is his own boss and, and he's currently got protection. What, what actually takes that protection away? I'm guessing none of this can happen before the World Cup in any case. I mean, your answer is, is as good as mine. Um, in the last few press conferences, you know, obviously the, the topic is always arising. There's always going to be questions being asked by journalists who are on the player's side, for example. Jorge Vila is, is very firmly saying that if the World Cup was tomorrow, these are the players that I'm taking. And that doesn't include the 15. And obviously the relationship between the Federation and that group of players has been very tense. And I will go so far to say petty when they weren't, you know, awarded their medals correctly. We've heard that story here in Australia. Um, the fact that they haven't been able to sit down around the table and work out a, a solution or a resolution to this. So I guess, Alex, it leaves the players in a position like you've just mentioned where the Federation is saying you can't come back unless, one, you apologise and, two, you start putting the time in. Um, but on the other side, the players want to play on the biggest world stage and they now have to choose their, I guess, their own personal values over playing for a coach that they clearly don't respect um, in a situation where they find you're saying the, uh, the support services and the training intensity is not enough in order to pull on the jersey. It's a pretty sad situation. Yeah, it's, I mean, you put yourself in the player position. For example, Alexa Poteas, you know, arguably the best player in the world right now. She's 29. It, if she waits for the next World Cup, she's going to be 32, 33. You know, that is a bis, big ask for a player to miss a World Cup at their peak age of their playing career to potentially not even make it next time around. So you, you look at it on that perspective and you know most of these players are around that age that are at their peak performance that have to choose between missing a World Cup or standing what they believe in and essentially standing what you believe in with you know, the, the sense that it's not gonna be for any good at the end of the day because the Federation isn't responding. Do you think Pateas will be uh, the main impactor here? If she decides to play, will the other players follow her? And will she decide to play? Do you have any insight on that? I, yeah, I, I would say Alexia would be the most impactful, not internally, but because of the external pressure potentially, maybe from UEFA, maybe from FIFA themselves, you know, having a player like, like Alexia Poteas miss a World Cup. You know, Ada Hegerberg did it last last World Cup in the protest for the her national team. But if, if you look at the stage where Alexia is now, if you have that external pressure from you know, maybe even marketing from from sponsorships, from again, you know, UEFA, UFIFA, that might have more of a weight to to kind of give Alexia X amount of power over the Federation. And that would potentially be able to bring in the other 15 players with her, for example. But to say for certain, that's not sure. But I would, I think her name in all of this will be what weighs most. I wanted to ask, you You mentioned the fans chanting Vilda stay, uh, and it, it quite clearly paints the schism based on club allegiance. But do you think this is the sort of thing that could actually lead to a revival for ambitions of a, a Basque national team or a Catalan national team? Something that the Spanish Federation and UEFA have both wanted not to happen. Uh, but, you know, we see with the home nations, we see with four or three teams within uh, Great Britain or four teams within Great Britain uh, all playing as their own national teams is is women's football rather than men's football the thing that could actually finally drive this to happen it's it's an interesting topic of of debate i was thinking about it and i just don't know how feasible it would be in women's football because of the amount of players there would be because if you look at again you know a uk a scotland an ireland just they would have just an overall 
bigger population, let's say. When you look at, you know, maybe a Catalan national team would be a, a bit easier because you have, you know, for example, all the Barcelona players would be. But you look at, for example, other little regions within Spain that just might not be feasible. So whether that would be feasible on overall scale, a Catalan national team would probably be the most... A Catalan team know, and the rest, Alex. <laughs> pretty, pretty much it would be. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting one, you know, because they still play once in a while. Um, for example, the the Basque team played against a Chilean friendly um, last month, so it still happens, just not on a on an international you know competitive scale yet. With Canada blowing up recently with their own strike and their own protests against their federation, very well documented and disclosed uh, how they've approached their protest for better pay, better conditions and more transparency within that federation with uh, where the expenditure is going. It seems as though Canada's already on a road to a a resolution. Do you see Spain being on Mm -hmm. a road to a resolution here or is this situation just totally different? I mean, the way that the federation have been responding to it, I think it's completely different. For, for uh, you know, when the president of the entire federation is on the side of the trainer and the federation itself against the players and has, you know, greatly outspoken against these 15 players, it's hard to say that there's going to be any progression. And it's been so long now that and there's literally no bit, there's been no advancements. Every, every time the national team comes into camp, the same questions are being asked, the same answers are being given. There's absolutely no progression. So... You know, you're getting closer and closer to the World Cup and there's and there's there's no progress. You don't know who's going to be going. You don't know if there's going to be any resolution. And again, there has been no external pressure and you have no idea what needs to be done for the Federation or the president to do anything about it. Whereas Canada, I think, might be the external pressure might be a bit more. And I think the Canadian Federation, for example, gives it gives more importance to that external pressure than, for example, the, the Spanish president and perhaps also to the players themselves yeah. Alex, showing you know respect to the players themselves because at the end of the day it is the players that are out there on the pitch yeah. it is the players um i know Taylor will back me up on this that everybody comes to watch that everyone wants to see and i think the greatest disappointment for us here um will be if the best team the best spanish team is not out on that pitch come the women's world cup it's disappointing when you see how Spain finished in the Euros, you know, with the potential that the team's had, even without Alexia Puteas, that team is outstanding. The depth of that squad is, is ridiculous. And when it was already disappointing that they didn't get far enough because of, of their management, of their leadership, that they, that they couldn't get it through. And then you look at it somehow gets worse. You, you really thought it couldn't get worse after the Euros and, and them not really maximizing their potential. Now it's gotten worse. Now you have different players. You have... I wouldn't want to say less players, but they're not your best players, essentially. They're not, you know, the most informed players that you have. That's not it because you're not picking from the best. And it is really disappointing because essentially Spain has always been one of the favourites to to win, you know, the Euros, the World Cup with the players that they have. But now that's all gone to waste. So with the team that we're seeing at the moment, if we don't see a change in coach and we don't see Alexia making the decision to come and dragging the rest of the players with her, is this team that we've seen here in Australia what we can expect come the World Cup? I, I genuinely, what Wilda says when he says that these are the 23 players that he's going to take with him to the World Cup, I think he genuinely means that. 
even if the 15 became available, has anyone in this Cup of Nations or in the recent run of internationals solidified a spot due to the door being opened to them? Is there anyone that, that has stood out to you that's either a first 11 player or would be a must-select in the final 23 as a result of getting this uh, unprecedented opportunity for international exposure? I mean, there, there's plenty. You know, for example, Ivana um, Andres, she's, you know, she's a veteran player for Real Madrid in the defence. You know, she would potentially not get a start or maybe not even a call-up if, you know, a Mapi, if Irene Paredes, if, you know, all that that group of players would be essentially there. If you have, for example, Laia um, Alexandri, who's potentially, you don't know what position she's playing when Jorge Alvida plays her. But, for example, Olga Carmona used to not play because a Leila Wahabi would be there or an Onabaye would be there. Now, you know, these players, again, you know, these Real Madrid players essentially are the big ones. They're getting, you know, starting. They're getting starting 11s now because Barcelona players aren't there. When you look at Real Madrid versus Barcelona, Barcelona players will likely be the better option most of the time. And now you have these players coming in that are getting their, you know, the starting 11s, for example, even, you know, Misa Rodriguez, the, the keeper. Sandra Paños is always seen as, as the number one keeper. Now Misa is the number one keeper in the national team. So you know you have you, you do have that rotation of players who have solidified their their starting position in that eleven that potentially wouldn't be it before. So again, you have these players you know not necessarily supporting the fifteen because it might work for them, but it's it's a team that you know that wouldn't be there if the fifteen were there. Where do you think UEFA stands with this? Do you think UEFA is is secretly hoping that? Barcelona make the Champions League final and that the UEFA Champions League final is actually a bigger event than the FIFA World Cup final given the current you know sort of struggle for power between UEFA and FIFA we keep hearing about Super League in the men's we keep hearing about Club World Cup do you think deep down UEFA might actually be happy this is happening or would they be unhappy that Spain seems to be such a dysfunctional federation that they can't work this out it's an interesting one because I would say even working for the for the zone, you know the the engagement, the the marketing, the the exposure that that this Barcelona team brings you is ridiculous. I say that genuinely. You know, just working from Women's Champions League, the comparison of Barcelona versus other teams is quite big. So it depends if UEFA want to look at it from that way. If UEFA want to look at it as you're not having you know some of the best players in Alexia Botellas who will bring you a lot of different things that other players will not bring you. It depends what they're looking at it, but essentially they have to support the team that goes. And at the end of the day, Spain isn't the only team in in UEFA. So I don't know how much importance, but it does surprise me that they're not stepping in in this matter because it does involve, you know, player welfare. It does involve working environments. And it is surprising to me that none of the, you know, football associations have stepped in and, and actually tried to, to try to work things out. There's a question there, Alex, for me comes also down to budget, I think. Is this about clubs having more money than the National Federation and being able to invest in their players and the National Federation not having the budget to to keep up to provide these services also, as well as your personnel issue, obviously. Um, but is there also... I'd love to hear a little bit more about their inequality or the equality between how the men's team are treated and how the, the women's team are treated by the federation. Yeah, so that has been fixed as of recently. Um, the, they're not paid equally, but they're paid the same percentage. Of, so a prize money, for example, the players will be paid the pay, same percentage. Of course, men's 
football brings in more money in that aspect. So their percentage would just naturally be larger. But the the number of the percentage is the same. Um, I would say facilities are the same. They train in the same, you know, sports in the national team sports ground. So in terms of budget, it's there. For example, they, you know, Spain flew to Australia this time around. They flew business. So the federation is putting in money in terms of equal treatment. And that has been kind of a slow progress as well. That that was only recent. Um, for example, the federation with the, the Women's League in Spain, that has only been professionalized fully as of, you know, like less than two years basically so yeah so you know the federation is slowly getting there so the equality is mostly there i would say the budget is there to to make it it's just i think the standard that the federation is putting is quite low and there is room to maximize it and i don't think budget is a problem I did want to ask about your perceptions of Australia because, of course, Australia defeated the Spain team 3-2 on Sunday night, our time, uh, turning around from that 7-0 defeat, what, eight, nine months ago? So a, a pretty dramatic shift, obviously, totally different looking teams in both instances for both Australia and for Spain. But what are the perceptions from afar of the progress Australia has made in the last two years? I think it's quite evident that Australia has has done big things in the last few years um, especially when you look at it from the 2019 World Cup. I've always been a fan of Australia. I, I'm not saying that just because I'm on the show. Um, you know, I've been big fans of, of a lot of players and you've seen the progress of players, especially when they've been exposed to different leagues. When you have a Sam Kerr exposed to a Chelsea, for example, Steph Catley playing in Arsenal, Caitlin Ford playing in Arsenal, and they're exposed to a league like the WSL, but they're also exposed to playing in the Champions League. I think that's only benefited Australia at the end of the day. And, you know, working towards a home World Cup is completely different as well. The motivation is is quite different. And, you know, especially a lot of the players have said that when you're they went to the Euros and they took that energy and they're going to try to replicate that in Australia. So the progression from here, you see it mainly from the players that play in Europe. So you see a Sam Kerr, you know that, you know, even if you don't watch Australia, you know that Australia is playing with a, a striker like Sam Kerr. So you give Australia already a certain kind of level because of the players that they have and the players that people know from Europe, essentially. Well, I wanted to ask then, what does Australia need to do to keep improving its perception? And by that, I mean our bigger names sign for bigger clubs, our fringe players sign for European clubs. But even we've had a big spate of players that have gone to small teams in Scandinavia, you know, tiny towns in Denmark, Iceland. A lot of players have moved clubs to Europe and it hasn't worked for them and they've come back to Australia, mainly because they've they've left clubs that maybe just weren't at the standard of what they were already getting at home in the A-League women's. So how how does Australia improve its perception so that when a Sam Kerr moves, it is to a Chelsea or a Barcelona or a Real Madrid, but also when our starting 11 players move, they go to the top of the WS sell rather than to whichever team will take them and then even our fringe players when they move they go to a club that's going to actually be an improvement on Australia as opposed to a bit of a gamble and maybe they don't even earn enough money at that club to actually live year-round as a professional footballer yeah it's a hard one I think I think the exposure that players get on the national team I think is quite big for example if if an Australia is going to come play against France for example in a friendly and you have a younger player that stands out to them you know French leagues are gonna are gonna take notice in that. So I think it's it's genuinely just about keeping the level on the national team and potentially exposing the players to different countries rather than leagues. And that's how you get scouted. You know, you you've seen the 
for example, you know, Enzo, Enzo Fernandez for, for Chelsea in the men, you know, he played a good World Cup and look where it, where it got him now. So I think it's the exposure of the national team, seeing players play well. And that's how they get, you know, to the top of, of the WCL. So say Australia wins this World Cup. I see a few contracts coming up, so... I think we're already, um, you know, we're batting pretty well at the moment and I hope to see that pathway continue for our national team players into the top teams across the world, including I'd love to see more Aussie players over in Spain, you know, especially at your top clubs. Uh, Just one, to experience it, but two, it's a completely different type of football than what we're used to and what we play and I think that can only help our players grow. Uh, You will have seen Australia over the last couple of years play a lot of top 10 nations, as many as we possibly can and that's been part of the plan uh, as we move toward the World Cup and we've obviously just announced we're going to play in England um, against the Lionesses in uh, April so that will be an absolutely huge match and one of those those uh, platforms that you're talking about Alex but the question comes with these great players uh, everyone from around the world seems to know Sam Kerr uh, she's certainly a favorite here in Australia but also globally why can't she win the Ballon d'Or or even make the FIFA best shortlist at the moment? What is it going to take for Sam to win the Ballon d'Or? I honestly... I I can give you a list of achievements as long as my arm. Yeah, no, it, it honestly... You know, these awards, the voting for these awards are very sceptical. You, you can't really understand most of them. You know, you have these lists of top 100 players of the year, top 40 players of the year, and you disagree with every single one of them. And the the voting disparity between all of it is is quite intriguing. It's really intriguing, and I I generally don't know what what Sam Kerr has to do more, you know. And it might be because of the national team weighing, um, you know, when you look at the Ballon d'Or, it is a France federation that is voting for it. It's a lot of European, you know, people voting for it. And when you look at the Euros, for example, that just came by, that's gonna have a big way on this on this list. You know, Alexia Poteas won it before because she won, you know, the Champions League. And you look at Australian players and you look at Sam Kerr, Sam Kerr's won the WSL, how much of a weight does it actually have? So it's it's a hard one because I think trophies do weigh a lot more than what they need to in this in the sense of rather than seeing a player for how good they are and not what they've achieved essentially because of the disparity of, of opportunities, I think, more than anything, to win a Champions League, to win a Euros, to win a World Cup, for example. Um it it's it's a very complicated question. But I'm not I'm not always in in agreement with a lot of the awards, but I think it's just you can't it's I think it's the best that can be done, but it's just not perfect at the end of the day at all. Can I just touch on something you said there about uh, world-class teams? And obviously we have the Champions League, which decides the best team, club team, and, and I understand that. But I'd like to go and hear your comparison of the WSL, for example, to Liga F and see how you think they rank against each other from top to bottom. Because they obviously all have top quality teams in their leagues and you have a standout team that has over it like has well and truly achieved and achieved and achieved is that what sets Liga F apart or is there something else there or do you think that gap is closing it's a very interesting topic that I have debated with a lot of people my my take on it is that the WSL has more money so teams are a bit closer to each other but I think Liga F has a, a better football like foundation 
I think like Liga FA plays better football, but WSL has more money lower down outside. We're talking outside of the top four of Man City, Man United, Chelsea, and Arsenal. When you look at, for example, a Leicester that would have the least amount of money, you know, they're still being able to to sign players of, you know, they have Chelsea players on their squad. You know, Chelsea plays Chelsea players are on loan. You know, it's a lot smarter, and that's the bottom of the table team. When you look at Liga FA and the bottom of the table teams, you're getting. You know, you're not getting Chelsea Academy players in there, you know, for example. So I think the dispari- the main disparity be- between WSL and Liga FA is the money. When you look at Barcelona, Barcelona are at the top of the game because they've invested so much money for X amount of time. Which makes this topic even more intriguing considering the Lionesses are champions of Europe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, even if you look at Chelsea, you know, Chelsea have won the league. What has It's been three consecutive times. And, you know, you compare that to Barcelona, you know, yes, Barcelona are more dominant, but at the end of the day, WSL has had one champion for the last three seasons as well. So that argument of Barcelona are way too dominant in their league, Chelsea have done the exact same for the past three seasons. And yes, it's been close, you know, last season, it went down to the, to the last day of the season against Arsenal, but essentially Chelsea have won the league three consecutive years. So, But just on the Kerr thing, and listeners to the Gagan pod will know that I actually argued that Sam Kerr wouldn't win due to historical factors that maybe count against players that play at English teams. But Barcelona are 19 from 19 in the league. They're still lighting up the Champions League and, and scoring remarkable goals and, and winning in remarkable fashion. And it's all been done without Pateus there. So does that actually speak to the fact that Barcelona is the strength and not Pateus? And, and dare I suggest that maybe Pateus is a little bit overrated? Uh, I, ha- I have to go now. I'm sorry. I can't talk about this. <laughs> no, it's 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 an interesting one. I mean, I get I get the point that you're definitely looking at. But when you look at the way that Barcelona have been playing at the start of the season, it was really shaky. It was a rough start to the season. And, and even playing bad, you know, they still were able to, to win. Um, but Barcelona have not been playing well at all for their standard. They have not, you know, it, it's, it has been tough to fill that Alexa Podéas gap. And I think not until now, not until, you know, the end of January, beginning of February, have they actually established themselves and gotten comfortable with it. And it, it's just, it's <laughs> the background again. You can tell in Spain. Um, but it's... It's an interesting concept because yeah, you look at you look at Barcelona and they have been winning. They have you know, what is it, fifty four consecutive league wins already. But they haven't. They were playing bad. They have said it themselves in the Champions League. They lost against Bayern Munich. You know they have not playing been playing good football. So I would say that yes, Alex Botellas, they're still doing well without her. But I think that gap is is you know that's that has no price on it to have Alex Podéas in your midfield. How does the gap get closed in this Spanish league? Is the league happy to have Barcelona's super team winning all the time or would it be better for them to have a closer competition? Are they happy with the way it is? But what will it take to close it up, Alex? Is it about money? I generally don't think in Liga if it is about money, like it is in the WSL, for example, because your top four in the WSL is... Chelsea, Arsenal, Man City, Man United, because they're able to recruit so many players. But you have Liga Efe, you know, second place right now is Levante. That has maybe a quarter of the money that Barcelona and Real Madrid have. You know, Real Madrid with an X amount of money still aren't able to keep up with Barcelona. Levante are there. You know, one of the players is competing with for the top goal score of the league. And, you know, not to say, I mean, she isn't a nobody, but, you know, she's not an Alexia Podéas, for example. So I wouldn't say it's down to the money. It's about the management of the players, 
the the football that is being played because I think the priority in Spain is playing good football rather than spending as much money in, in X amount of players. Um, but I think that example is there, you know, when you have Levante being second in the league, I think that says it all. As we know, Puteas still rehabbing an injury, Beth Mead, long-term injury, Vivian Miedema, long-term injury. Who is the best player in the world right now? That's a hard one. You don't have to say Kirk as you're on this podcast. I keep saying it's Aitana Bonmati and I'm still allowed to live in Australia. You know what? I'm going to say Aitana. That was genuinely my, my perception. I think Aitana, at the mo- at where she is at the moment, because I think also at the beginning of the season when Barcelona wasn't playing too well, I think she was putting a lot of pressure on herself to fill in the Alex Puteas gap. And I think that's where the problem arose, whereas that, you know, there has been a lot of shifts in that midfield. But now she's gotten to the rhythm of she just needs to be herself. And she said that in an interview, you know, at one point she was putting too much pressure on herself to be something that she's not potentially on the pitch. And now that they've finally clicked with Aitana, you know, being herself, you know, she is already fighting for the top goal scorer of the Champions League, top assister of the Champions League. She is outstanding in the midfield. I think she is, she's genuinely playing really, really well at the moment and could arguably be, you know, when you have Alexa Puteas as the standard of the, of the best player in the world, Aitana Bonmati is, is really close. So given she's one of Spain's 15, who is actually going to be the best player at the World Cup? That's that's a hard... You know, I, I saw this... I, I've been thinking about this question for about a day now. And I the first player that comes to mind, I want to say Alessio Russo for England. I think that the, the form that she's in and potentially how far England will be able to get in the tournament, that could be key. Um, I would I would like to say Alessio Russo, I think. Amy, for me, it's it's pop. If if Germany has pop, I think they lift the trophy. If they if if for whatever reason they don't, uh, congratulations, USA, you win again. <laughs> that's that's where I'm at at the moment. Okay. I actually I think this will be the first Women's World Cup we don't see America uh, make it all the way through. And I'm, I, I know really that's a big bold that. call because I, I have supported them and I know they struggled through 2019, but I did ultimately think they were going to win. I, I don't have that sentiment. I think this is going to be an amazing World Cup because there is there are so many women's uh, teams coming through now that are powerhouses in this game and have the ability to win. Uh, without your top 15, I'm not putting Spain up there, and I'm sorry to say that, Alex, because I think they've just disappointed, um, as you said, in their results uh, previously. I'm hoping to see Australia right up there come um, come 2023, and in my heart, I want that to happen. Uh, in my head, I think there are some you know really big powerhouses out there, but who do you think is going to win? That's a loaded question. Of course it is. I, <laughs> oh, you know, I, I do have faith that Australia might actually make it. Oh. I, I, I would I would go ahead and say for top four, we're definitely going to have England, Australia in there. We're going to have Germany, I think is undeniably has to be in there. And you know what? I'm going to go. Mm, I'm going to go for Sweden. Top four for that. Sweden, Germany, Australia and England. I'll take our chances against everyone except for England. I think that will be the, the toughest, the toughest game that we will face in this World Cup. But um, Oh, no. I, I think England's our budgeted upset. I think Germany's the one we're going to struggle with. <laughs> budgeted upset. I like that term. Sam Kerr knows everyone well enough. Yeah, but you could argue that they know her too, Alex. Uh, Alex, before we, we let you go, uh, the floor's yours for some plugs. If people have enjoyed this chat and want to hear and follow more of your work, where can they find you? Um, on Twitter is mostly where I do most of my work and bad jokes. Um, it's at Alex underscore Yvaseta23. 
that's mostly where you'll find everything that I'm doing and everything that I'm up to. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for the insight and can't wait to uh, see your reporting for the remainder of the Champions League season and also the build-up to the Women's World Cup. And I look forward to meeting you when you hit Australian shores, Alex. Perhaps we'll be able to watch a game together. Yes, I have my tickets for the opening match of England, so I'll be there and the final, so you have the whole month. Big thanks to Alex Ibiseta. Amy, that was a fascinating chat. We learned so much there about what's going on in Spain. And, uh, gee, doesn't it whet your appetite for the World Cup coming up? And we have a massive, massive announcement yesterday from Football Australia about not just the Matildas, but the Socceroos playing against England in England. We're going to get all the 2003 nostalgia for the Socceroos, and we are going to get one almighty test for the Matildas. Oh, absolutely. And I'm going to start with the Socceroos because it's been 20 years since Australia beat England. Um, And in fact, Graham Arnold, who's our current coach, uh, was there for that encounter as the assistant coach at the time to Frank Farina. So it sets up some, yes, tantalizing, nostalgic memories, but also a chance for our new players, obviously, to make history. And we've only got a couple of players playing top flight over there at the moment or even in England at the moment with um, uh, Harry Souter, of course, at Leicester. Um, being the biggest name that we will imagine. So super looking forward to that, but it's a bit more of a build-up to come. I think the mouth-watering match, and a, and a, it's scary on one sense and so exciting on the other, will be the Matildas taking on the Lionesses. They're the European champions. They're one of our biggest competitors as we head into the Women's World Cup this year. It's a real litmus test, but it's also a chance for Australia to really stamp their authority and show we've been working really hard. We've been playing top 10 nations. We've improving all the time um this is where we're at heading into a world cup what a what a mouth-watering clash and, and we haven't touched a great deal on the cup of nations because we're recording this mid-tournament uh in fact on game day so obviously it's going to be pretty dated by then but hey pretty exciting time to be involved in australian football isn't it how awesome is it to have the cup of nations back on home soil uh australia dominating the group at the moment lining up as you said tonight up in newcastle and we'll hopefully make it three from three and claim a piece of silverware, which will be lovely. Um, it was disappointing that Spain was able to fight back in that last, uh, the second half of the last game. And I think Australia uh, need to get ahead and really lock those clean sheets away. And that's something that they'll have to continue to work on as we head towards the World Cup. But yeah, so much football between now and the World Cup, including the World Cup playoffs, which are happening at the moment too, Teo. Amy Duggan, thanks for joining us once again on the Pot. Look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks for having me. Yes, a big thanks to all our guests that joined us on the Pod this week. Michael Bridges, Thomas Sorensen, Alex Ibisetta and Amy Duggan. The Premier League has a Saturday morning showdown between Fulham and Wolves from 7am Australian Eastern Time. Then a bumper goal rush coming up in the early hours of Sunday morning with Arsenal away at Leicester City as one of our four live games at 2am. Bournemouth host Manchester City at 4.30am and then Liverpool fans set your alarms for 6.45am and the trip to Crystal Palace. There's one blockbuster on Monday morning and it's Tottenham playing Chelsea from 12.30am. All times Australian Eastern Daylight Time. La Liga kicks off at 7am Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Saturday with Elche hosting Real Betis. You can see the derby between Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid at 4.30am on Sunday, while Barcelona are away to Almeria at 4.30am on Monday. 
all times Australian Eastern Daylight Time. And depending on when you're listening to the pod, we've got World Cup playoffs on Wednesday and Thursday on Optus Sport, so make sure to jump on the app and check out the live games, mini-matches and highlights. Portugal versus Cameroon, Chile versus Haiti and Paraguay versus Panama. The WSL will be back from the international break on Optus Sport on Sunday, March 5. Wherever you get your podcasts, make sure to subscribe and give us a five-star rating while you're there. I've been your host, Teo Pelizzeri. Thanks for listening to the Optus Sport Football Podcast. This was the Gegenpod. Pod.